This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. This week is episode number 561. And we welcome Todd DeMont, uh, Chief Innovation Officer of Madison Indoor Air Quality, and Larry Carlson of Phoenix Restoration Equipment, a division of Thermostore. Looking forward to a great show talking about the present and future of indoor air quality and disaster restoration. Before we get started, let's thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to John Lapotere. Florida IAQ Solutions in Orlando, Florida. It was first identified by William Welf Wewall as the person who coined the term scientist for someone who studies the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. The IAQ radio trivia question for today, Friday the 11th of September 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Name the two co-inventors of the gas absorption refrigerator. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thanks, Cliff. So Todd DeMont is the Chief Innovation Officer for Madison Indoor Air Quality, and he has years of experience developing and producing products that improve and control indoor environments. It is his work with Thermostore LLC and Phoenix Restoration Products that people would be most familiar with, our IAQ and water damage professional audience. He's led to, uh, his, his work has led to many patented innovations that yield real benefits. Uh, he's led Thermostore from 2003 to 2019 and now leads innovation for Thermostore and its eight sister companies through Madison IAQ. Larry, Larry uh, Carlson, joined Thermostore in 1992 as a product manager for ventilation and dehumidification products. In 1994, he introduced the Phoenix 200, the first low-grain refrigerant dehumidifier. Through 2003, he oversaw the expansion of the Phoenix Restoration Equipment product line to include the Guardian HEPA system, Focus, Axial Air Mover, and the Phoenix 300 and 200 Max. He returned to Thermostore in 2006 as the marketing manager, and he's currently the industry manager and international sales manager. He's participated in numerous 
standards over the year, including the IICRC's S500. So welcome, gentlemen. Great to have you on the show. All right, let's start with uh, let's start with you, Todd. Tell listeners a little bit about Madison Industries. We had the the title of the show as Madison, uh, the present and future of IAQ restoration, Madison Industries, Thermostore LLC, and Phoenix Restoration Equipment, an American success story. If you can tell listeners a little bit about Madison, and um, you're located, I, I assume, in Madison, Wisconsin. That's part of the name? Well, uh, good questions. Um, so Thermostore is located in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, Madison Industries is actually located in Chicago. It was named after uh, Madison Avenue, which is where the uh, headquarters is located, down in uh-huh. Chicago. Um, the, the vision of Madison Industries is to create a company that uh, improves the uh, – safety, health, and productivity of people across the country and is trying to build a, uh, a company that will outlaw or outlast all of us, right? So we have the right goals and the right mission. And uh, a part of that company is the Madison Indoor Air Quality Vertical or Business Unit. And inside that business unit is Thermostore and its sister companies. I see. And Larry, you, you guys have worked together for quite a while, you know, in various parts of the company. Um, you've seen a lot of things come and go, you know, what, what keeps you at Phoenix? What is it about working there at the, well, we think of you as Phoenix, but, uh, I guess you're at ultra air. Phoenix is a division of ultra air, right? Uh, Phoenix is the division of Thermostore. Of Thermostore. All right. <laughs> when I started with Thermostore in 92, uh, it was kind of a backward situation where they had a product, but they didn't have any markets. So my job was to find markets for our high-efficiency dehumidifiers. Hmm. And we, say, developed the uh, residential units with Sahara and then ended up being Santa Fe, Ultra Air uh, as an installed dehumidifier, and then Phoenix for the restoration market. Then we also had a high dry line, which was uh, commercial. And... As I develop things, I'm not sure if it's because I was successful with restoration or if I was successful with restoration because I enjoyed it so much. But the people in the restoration industry really is what compelled me to use that as my primary push when things got too large for me to do uh, all the markets. I see. Todd, you're you're called the – I was – Interesting. You used to be the president, I believe, of, um, I guess it was Ultra Air at the time, or um, Thermostore. Uh, but anyway, now you're, I noticed your new title was the Chief Innovation Officer, and that, that's an interesting title to me. What is, what is innovation to you? Uh-huh. Well, you know, so for a company to grow and create value, you can do it a couple different ways. One is uh, you can focus on operational efficiency. Uh, but that often needs to be balanced on focusing on growth and innovation opportunities. So uh, my role is to focus on the growth and innovation opportunities for Thermostore and our sister companies. And uh, that's mainly focused on finding new markets and or bringing uh, new technologies to our current markets. Uh, that's a, an area where I really uh, enjoyed myself at Thermostore over the past 15 years. And uh, I'm looking forward to being able to leverage uh, my experience and that uh that excitement across the, uh, our sister companies. So the, those sister companies spread out to more than just um, disaster restoration and, and indoor air quality. Um, I, I, if I recall correctly, when we talked yesterday, you also 
have uh, some commercial dehumidification, I guess, would be for swimming pools. Maybe tell listeners a little bit about some of the other lines you deal with. Sure. So uh, in the uh, commercial dehumidification segment, we have Ceresco, Coolpack, and Dectron. And those are the leaders in natatorium dehumidification. Um, we, for dedicated outdoor air systems, uh, another sister company is Addison. Uh, they're a leader um, for bringing in outdoor air and conditioning it for commercial locations. Um, then we also have another group called Warm Air, which focuses on um, infrared heating and um, for warehouses and also for specialty applications like paint shops. Hmm. That direct DOAD. Um, it seems to me, I, I get the, I'm an ASHRAE member, I get the ASHRAE journal, I'm always seeing articles about DOAD. Is that growing as quickly as it seems? It is growing as quickly as it seems. Uh, in the history of Thermostore, um, we used to say we want to make sure we push the constraints of the marketplace, right? We don't want to be the constraint on our growth. We want to make sure that we can provide the marketplace with whatever the demand is in the marketplace. In the, the DOAS uh, marketplace, uh, we're still struggling with we're the, internally where there are all constraints. We actually can't produce enough equipment. So those are always fun challenges to overcome. Ultimately, we need to push the constraints of the marketplace. Interesting. What, what kind of, you know, if I'm an indoor air quality guy, maybe this is out of, your, uh, out of your range here, but if I'm an indoor air quality guy, I'm kind of new to the, the, the DOAS uh, type systems. What should I be looking for? Ultimately, um, the building contractors and engineers uh, set up the HVAC system to handle uh, the climate control uh, independent of the ventilation load. Uh, so the DOAS system uh, is set uh, or designed to handle the ventilation load, right? The load that that's going to put on the building, uh, bringing in outside air for the occupants. Um, so it's going to be a temperature load and a latent load or a humidity load. So essentially, um, you have to... Uh, specify the right location, the right ventilation loads, and the equipment is designed to meet those. Um, it, it's pretty straightforward, and uh, engineering firms are specifying the right equipment all the time um, by using the, the load calculations, and uh, it then comes down to efficiency, delivery, and quality on the product. Interesting. I, I, we had a, actually, I, th I think Lou Harriman may even be listening in, but uh, he did a great presentation at summer camp this year. I, did you get to see Lou's presentation? I did. I took uh, three or four pages of notes on it. It was great. <laughs> Any things that comes to your mind off the top of your head that he mentioned that, that you thought, you know, I better, when I get back, I'm going to look into that a little more. I, uh, you know, I agree wholeheartedly with what he's saying there. Yeah. Between you and me, uh, every company he mentioned, I'm looking at uh, the potential for us to go acquire them. So yeah, I mean, he's uh, a <laughs> source on uh, great companies, right? So there's a sensor company likes, right? Technology companies. Uh, Lou is a wealth of information. Yeah, it was a it was a great great job. All right, let's let's go back to Larry. Uh, Larry, you've seen a lot of uh, restoration companies come and go over the years. There's good ones. There's not so good ones. There's successful ones, not so successful ones. Uh, what do you see as a, as like a common denominator? for the companies and or even supervisors that, that are successful in that industry? I think uh, probably first off, I'd say dedication to doing a good job. Then I'd say the education so that you know enough to be able to do a good job. Uh, 
And uh, it, it's got to be a mission as opposed to a job. I mean, uh, uh, the guys that are successful are the people that put in the hard work and uh, restoration isn't their nine to five, it's their 24 seven. And uh, you usually get that in the restoration industry simply because the nature of the business is uh, stuff happens at any time of the day or night or calendar year. So you have to be ready to move at those times. You know, we're talking about uh, you, you're an American company and American made. And I think uh, one of the things that I've seen is more uh, restoration companies are, are hiring military um, because it, they know that, you know, it's a mission. Just like you said, I, I like the way you say it. it's a mission. They're out to accomplish the mission and it doesn't always get accomplished in a, you know, an eight hour a day, five day a week, uh, 40 hour job, you know? So uh, have you seen that as well? Or do you, you feel like they have a, uh, you know, that, that those looking for restoration supervisors should be focusing in that area? Oh, I think absolutely. Uh, quite a few of the people, even though they won't necessarily mention it uh, when you're talking with them, are veterans and uh, got their first experiences in the military. And it translates well into the industry because you're often put in a position where you may be in charge with of your, your techs, but when you do large commercial jobs, you get a lot of uh, labor resources that uh, – you have to figure out how to command them and get them to do what you need done. Interesting. Let me, uh, Cliff, I want to make sure if you wanted to jump in, if you had any follow-ups at this point. Um, I, I do. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Joe. Um, Larry, you've been in the restoration industry a long time and you know, you've, seen some <laughs> <laughs> you've seen some technologies uh, come and go. You know, one of these is, like, I think, what we would call in-place drying. And, uh, you know, what's, what, what's your opinion on that? Although in-place drying uh, got pretty controversial almost immediately after it was introduced. Matter of fact, you and I attended, I think, the Wald School right. together in, what, 98? Uh, right, and right. we actually ended up with the Wald School, too, a few years later. Mm-hmm. In-place drying brought some regimentation to drying that I don't think it necessarily saw before. I think the ideals of it uh, to come up with a repeatable pattern for restoration was uh, a good thought. However, every job and every building ends up being significantly different, so it doesn't necessarily transfer well. Uh, I think it was used, it, it can be used in a lot of places and it's very effective in a lot of places. Most commercial jobs are going to be in place drying if you got commercial glue down carpet anyway. I think where the controversy arose is when you've got carpet cushion and if you didn't extract it or you didn't do it well, you ended up making more problems than you're necessarily solving. So, uh, I think it was, it's an important part of the business, I think drying period, no matter what the situation, you can have some strategies you want to employ, but the thing that always frustrated me about the industry is that you should know your end point before you start. And I think too many people dried three days 
And then uh, wherever they were, that was it. And they were going home, whether the job was really done or not. Yeah, you know, I, I guess going back to that, you know, if I could follow up, uh, you know, when is it dry enough? I guess, you know, that's the point, you know, knowing where you want to be at the end. And I guess my question for you as a manufacturer of this type of equipment, when is it dry enough? It's dry enough when you either are matching your pre-loss condition or whatever you've set as your drying goal based on similar materials in a similar area. Uh, and that should be determined ahead of time. So, I mean, you don't leave things wet. The standard tells you you got to be within a certain percentage of dry. Uh, they're a little bit more specific on hard or wood surfaces than they are with some of the softer materials. But you, you should understand what dry is before you start drying it, you know? I, I think too many guys, like I said, they go there three days or four days, maybe they're five days, and uh, however it is then, they figure if they're not getting paid, they're not going to keep going. Yeah, but I, I think, you know, some people, their motivation uh, is really to, you know, watch – the, the pieces of equipment and you know that's how they're making unfortunately that's how they're making the majority of their income it's not on what they know uh, you know I remember the days when you know we would quote a price and this is the way I, I, sh I think it should be done actually uh, it really shouldn't be I should be able on day one to give you a price for that job and guarantee that it's going to be dry, stay there till it's dry, stay there till we meet the criteria. And uh, that's the way that I think it should be done rather than having this uniformity of equipment where everyone's equipment is the same. And, you know, I, I think, you know, when you introduced your equipment, it was superior to other equipment and it made sense for people to invest in it and buy it because, they had an advantage or if you wanted to get a, a desiccant on a trailer or whatever, there's certain situations where that would be very, very effective. And there was not a, uh, there was not parity within the industry, but you know, I've long felt that the surfaces are dry enough when, you know, fungal growth is not going to occur. And I think in certain situations, uh, restoration companies have had a tendency to over dry, you know, certain materials such as concrete and so on and so forth. That moisture really isn't going to. Oh, I, I agree. Joe? I mean, if you look at concrete, uh, it's not a, uh, an inviting material for mold to grow on anyway. Uh, so, you know, what needs to be done to prevent or consider that to be dry. I mean, crap, concrete's never really dry. Right. I mean, it cures for hundreds of years, so. Right. Let me, let me follow up with, and I'll throw this out to both of you, and maybe one Todd might, might want to jump on. Over the last, I don't know, four or five years, we've seen more interest in measuring water activity as opposed to the moisture content we typically measure with moisture meters. Um, for a while, a company called Decagon was working on a product that um, 
I know people had looked at and thought about, you know, maybe we should be looking at water activity instead of moisture content. And I assume, Todd, you probably somehow, you know, were looking into that with your chief innovation officer uh, hat on there. What are your thoughts on that in, in that area? Is, are there any new innovations coming out? Or, um, you know, you guys mentioned concrete. I see a lot of people these days are using uh, basically a probe. They drill a hole into the concrete, and that's supposed to be a better way to ensure it's dried and ready for new floor coverings to be put on. Any thoughts from either of you on that? Where, where are we headed in the future on those things? So I'll take about uh, our, our position on how attractive that is to be in that technology as a company. And Larry, you can talk about where you think it's going. Okay. If you want. So um, I, I know that uh, sensors, meters, it's exciting and flashy. Um, in general, I'm a little bit nervous about it because the technology changes so quickly. It's hard to create a sustainable advantage. Um, and um, it's hard to protect what you've got and not be reverse engineered, right? So there's always... Uh, competition out there ready to uh, copy or reverse engineer what you've done. So I, I'm a, I do like it. I do try and keep on top of it. If I see something I think that is defensible uh, and has a moat around it that we could uh, maintain an advantage for a long time, I would be interested in it. Uh, but things change quickly and it's tough, right? It's tough to invest today, right? Um, I mean, just look at, uh, I mean, how's MySpace doing, right? I mean, I'm sure that was a good buy at one point or, you know, Netscape. So, Right. I'm definitely keeping an eye on it, but I'm also wary uh, that the, the market dynamics can change so quickly. And Larry, Larry, did you want to add anything? Well, I was uh, the only thing I was thinking with your question was with as uh, far as concrete goes, even though it's uh, a challenge to get accurate <clears throat> measurements on it, as far as mold growth or indoor air quality contamination, that seems to be lower on their priority list as far as what kind of surface can they put on it or, you know, uh, tile or wood or something that's not going to end up being corrupted because the concrete's not dry enough. And they, and they all have different requirements for how dry it's got to be before they'll warranty their product. Okay. I, I, you know, Todd, I, I want to kind of look at the American made angle for a minute. I know it's kind of off the, off the uh, topic of what we just talked about, but I, I wonder if you could, you know, it seems like it would be an advantage in many ways, but also, you know, you, you would have some disadvantages. I mean, you're probably going to pay more than some of the competition pays for, for labor and so forth. And I'm wondering um, how you see the advantage versus disadvantage of being an American made product. Well, you know, so when I joined Thermostore in 2003, we were American made. And um, it's not like we got to decide whether or not this is a good strategy, right? So we said, hey, we're American made. So how can we leverage this and make it into something that is a strategic or competitive advantage, right? So what, what does that allow us to do? It allows us to have uh, rapid response to market needs, right? So the fact that we can turn up and down manufacturing capacity, uh, on a daily basis to respond to market needs, that's something that's a big advantage being a U.S. manufacturer, right? So we should be playing in markets where that's important, and essentially we are in those markets. Um, another advantage is we, we can quickly change over uh, models. Uh, we can quickly introduce innovations because our engineers and our manufacturing operations are co-located, so we can get that brain power down to the operations floor. Uh, everything else, when you're building overseas or even in Mexico, 
it's months, if not, uh, you know, quarters between uh, changes. So you, you really need steady state, high volume production. Well, if you're going to be a U.S. manufacturer, you know, we're in markets where U.S. manufacturing has the advantage, which is uh, it's not uh, cookie cutter, it's not low cost, um, and it is responsive to market needs. And that's where we're playing. Very interesting. Very interesting. I thank you for that. Larry, um, the disaster restoration industry, it changes. And, and I, I don't know how quickly it's changing, but I, we've had people on the show, some of the younger guys that feel like it's changing very quickly. I, I think sometimes Cliff feels like, you know, we're changing away from things that worked very well in the past and that we should be a little more cautious about how quickly we change. How, how do you see it? Um, the restoration industry is it is changing as quickly as others maybe feel. And what are some of the future trends you envision within that restoration industry? Well, I think most of the technical technological changes probably have already occurred. I don't see that there's going to be some uh, brand new exciting refrigeration technology that we're going to be able to come up with. Our latest dehumidifier, I think, pretty much employs pretty much about everything we're going to be able to do in the foreseeable future as far as efficiency goes. Uh, uh, as far as looking at things evolving quickly, uh, the transfer of information from the equipment or connected equipment is one of the things we see as being key in the future. It's uh, becoming so commonplace in our everyday lives now that it's only a matter of time before the restoration industry is going to end up uh, being exposed to it or maybe getting on the getting on the wagon. The thing we're trying to do is to find a way to solve some of the problems that currently exist. Uh, the amount of information that the insurance companies want, the amount of documentation, uh, and they want to have it verified document, documentation. Uh, just because a tech writes something down, the insurance companies don't have complete confidence that uh, somebody's not using an eraser and changing some of those parts so that they can get paid or uh, maybe avoid questions about being paid. So what we're looking at is systems and devices that report directly to an app they're verified reading because they're coming directly from the equipment. Uh, no human uh, touch is required. And then also all this data can also be shared with the uh, insurance adjuster or the homeowner, uh, anybody else involved in the job. It'll bring an awful lot of uh, uh, exposure uh, or uh, visibility of what's going on on the job. So it's going to have to be your confident and competent restorers who are probably going to uh, uh, embrace it the most. You know, it seems like it would also help standardize the work across different jobs if, if they were all using the same, you know, the same. I, I assume this is like a networked kind of uh, report. It ends up helping you write your report. Uh, is that accurate? Yep. Uh, actually, with what we're working on, you'll actually be able to uh, create a report. Uh, you have it converted to a PDF. You can do a report summary, which is a, uh, maybe a page, a page and a half. But 
that report's going to include material moisture content beyond your, uh, what had been your psychometric readings. So it'll be pretty in-depth and uh, say a summary with a one page so you can look at that and say, see if there are any red flags that pop up. And if they do, we have a detailed page where you can see every piece of equipment. Uh, say our current equipment right now that we're doing with the Bluetooth enabled is taking a reading uh, every 15 minutes and you can select any of those readings as far as what you're going to end up putting into your report. We can go back to the entire graph for the entire job if you want to have it all data log. Larry, I've got a, a, a follow-up to this. What other industries is this model utilized in besides restoration? The, connecti the connected equipment? Model? No, no, this, this, this total visibility uh, with, with who's paying the bill. You know, you know, I'm not sure this is, you know, when high-rise buildings are made, I'm not sure that uh, the contractors have this sort of accountability. I'm not sure that the restoration companies that rebuild the buildings have this kind of accountability. I'm just wondering what other, you know, where is this model utilized elsewhere? You know, where the insurance company just, you know, we're big, we're big brothers there all the time watching our every move, everything we do, you know, keeping track of us, but they don't trust us. So I'm just trying to, I figured that you would know that this, this is modeled in some other industry. I think I'm too immersed in restoration because I've always had the feeling that uh, the insurance companies have always been looking over the shoulder and doubting the credibility of some of the restorers. I mean, once the restorer builds a trust with a, an agent or a company, that seems to be golden because they don't have to feel they're always being scrutinized. Um, I don't know. Automotive body shops, right? Yeah. You know, is it similar in automotive? I mean, I, my son just had a little minor accident. It's going to take us two weeks to get in and, and get it fixed because the the loan provider for this insurance company basically is so busy I can't even get in. Um, and I assume they're they're looked over they they're looking over their shoulder pretty carefully. But I, I don't know. Is that accurate to say? They do. They have a crash every fifteen min every fifteen minutes with blue with. Blue with Bluetooth? I think so. Yeah. You know, I think, I think they look at the, you know, they look at the bumper before they, they look at a book that tells them like, you know, their exactimate or whatever that tells them how, how many hours it's going to take to put on the bumper. I don't think they're looking at the body at the repairman every 15 minutes or whatever to be sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. It just, I don't know. It just seems anti-American to me in a, in a very, very big way, but you know, it's free enterprise. Yeah. That's where we're headed. I mean, uh, uh, we hear a lot of concerns like, you know, TPAs and uh, they're making things tougher than ever in the industry. Larry, do you, is that, I'm sure you hear the same thing. And I, I assume part of this, and we'll talk more about the specific product you're talking about in the second half, but uh, is that part of the reasoning behind putting this together? Part of the reason. I mean, uh, it also provides more information to the restorer so we understand what's going on better. 
Uh, a lot of times you'll have uh, customers will turn equipment off during a job because it's too noisy or, you know, it's irritating. Uh, with this sort of system, if a customer turns a piece of equipment off, it's going to send you an alert to let you know somebody turned something off. Uh, and actually, uh, we're on the road to a point where if somebody turns something off, you might actually be able to turn it back on from your living room. <laughs> That's cool. Um, Interesting. Hey, let's, let's stop for a minute. We're going to take a break, thank our sponsors. We'll be back for the second half of our interview. We've got Todd DeMont and Larry Carlson. Very interesting so far, gentlemen. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at IAQA.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. All right, we're back for the second half with Todd DeMont and Larry Carlson. Todd, I want to I jump over to you. We talked a little bit about American manufacturing and, and some of the advantages, and, and I, I thought that was really uh, – enlightening at least for me i i i kind of looked at uh i was looking more at the disadvantages i guess and you saw the advantages which is probably why you're the chief innovation officer and i <laughs> here and there. but uh the other thing i wanted to ask you is how do you see the future of american manufacturing are we you know it seems like we, were, we had a little push things were going a little bit better and now it seems to be leveling off or are we headed to a and a, a time when American manufacturing will be as strong and bigger and better than ever? Well, I hope so. Um, I mean, uh, I'm investing in the stock market in a way that thinks that. So, I mean, by retirement fund, at least. Um, I, I do have some concerns in general about, uh, you know, protecting IP. Um, you, you know, we're an IP-focused company. Back around 2000. Nine, we realized that if we don't protect everything we're doing, it's all going to be ripped off. Um, you know, we launched the Drymax XL uh, not even 18 months ago. Correct. And there's already an outrageous knockoff on it in the marketplace. Uh, we've got six different patents applied for on that product. 
and um, they haven't hit yet. But as soon as they, you know, we're going to be reaching out to that company. The uh, the amount of piracy of IP coming uh, from other countries is outrageous. Um, and and we're a small little marketplace, right? This is this isn't uh, Hollywood, and this isn't uh, you know big technology. We're a little tiny industry here, demon, portable demonification, and uh, we're being ripped off within 18 months. So um, I, I do think something has to be done there. I think uh, we're trying to get things done, but right, it's uh, it's a painful situation. I mean, part of the tariffs, uh, ironically, uh, some of our components come from China because the only way you can buy the components is sourced from China. Uh, we're getting a 25% tariff on subcomponents, but when the finished good of a dehumidifier is made in China and then sold at Home Depot, that has no tariff, right? So it's a, it's a bit confusing and uh, annoying to see, you know, the, uh, the mashup here of how the, uh, our trade policies are being implemented. But in general, uh, protecting IP is paramount. And um, without a doubt, we're paying for the innovation. We're paying for the R&D. We're bringing this technology to market. And uh, we've got to be able to protect it. Wow. What other, I mean, what other recommendations, if you, you know, had that magic wand and can wave it to, to help stop some of this piracy, what could, you, what could we do as a country? Ooh, care about where it's made. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I see about where it's made, the consumers care about where it's made. Is that the I think every consumer, if, if presented uh, with product A and product B and product A is made in America or made in USA and product B is not, they would choose it if everything else were equal. And I think personally, we have found that might be worth up to three to five dollars of retail price points on a thousand dollar to two thousand dollar dehumidifier or a $300 fan. So there is a preference, and I, said, I love the fact that uh, people want to buy uh, Made in USA products, uh, but there is a limit too, right? So it might be a one to 3% price premium. That's someone Todd, Todd, I've got a follow-up. Okay, you had this product that was knocked off within 18 months. You said that you're in a niche market in terms of where you're selling it. What's the evolution of this okay and what my question is did a chinese company find your product or did someone in the united states that you had a competitive advantage over take your product send it to china say i i want this oh great question great question so cliff it used to be the latter it used to be someone from the united states would take it to china and then have them try and copy whatever we're doing uh now there's a handful of Chinese companies that it appears their only goal is to copy whatever we're doing. So oh, you specifically, well, well, it's us and probably our competitors, right? Yeah. But they, I mean, if you would walk into their showroom and we've walked into all of their showrooms in China, they've got all of our products, all of our competitors' products and restoration, all of our competitors' products in the, on the residential and commercial side. Um, and essentially they're doing that, right? So, they let us figure out what the market is. They let us figure out uh, what technology is needed. And um, they're doing fast follower, right? So we have to protect everything we're doing. And it, we really can't make the investments in new products or new technology unless we can protect them. Right? So one, one example, this is one of my, one of my favorite examples. Uh, back when we were playing around with, in the bed bug times, uh, so or 2010 to 2014, uh, we came up with this little thing we call the bed bug bazooka which was a portable decontamination unit, right? So a little propane heater 
that could blow hot air on you for first responders, right? Where you could, you know, when police and uh, paramedics go into bed bug infested locations, they're going to get contaminated. This was something, and every one of these guys had stories about them bringing bed bugs back to their own residence. Mm -hmm. So we're like, oh, this is a perfect market. So we looked at it and we had three or four ideas on how to decontaminate first responders. Uh, then we looked at the patent uh, opportunity and all of our ideas, and it came down to uh, propane-powered hair dryers uh, are plentiful in the patent office, right? There's lots of variations. And essentially, this is a propane-powered hair dryer, even though we called the bed bug bazooka. Um, and we thought we could not bring this out to the market, even though we thought the market needed it. We thought we could make it profitably. We didn't think it was a, a sustainable enough concept to protect it. It would be too easy to knock off. So we had to not, we didn't bring it out. And really, it's, I think, to the detriment of the industry because it still happens, right? No one has come up with a good solution for this. And pest control guys, first responders, they all get contaminated from going into these locations. Mm -hmm. But we, we just couldn't do it, right? I mean, financially and business-wise, it didn't make sense for us. Fascinating. Let me, uh, I want to talk a little more about kind of the past, present, and future, especially with respect to dehumidification and, and indoor air quality. Um, you have uh, the Thermostore as the, uh, the Ultra Air line, and if I get these confused, let me know. Uh, basically, a ventilating dehumidifier and um, also good filtration on it. Fantastic. Uh, I, I love the whole idea. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, with uh, ASHRAE and, and the standards for uh, ventilation and commercial, but let's talk more residential buildings right now. Do you get involved at all or, or do you plan on maybe getting involved at all in, in the standard setting process within ASHRAE? Because it seems to me that one of the big arguments about bringing in more ventilation air is in hot, humid environments in particular, you're bringing in more hot, humid air. And it seems to me that maybe the standard should uh, make some kind of adjustment for that. Uh, do you guys deal with that at all or is that something that you kind of stay out of? We definitely uh, deal with it. We have resources on it. We have people who sit on those committees. Um, I would say we play more of a support role than a leading role, right? So we let the building scientists lead. Um, and we're listening and making sure that whatever the code changes may be or recommendations are, that we're aware of it and potentially creating products to help solve the problems. Uh, so we're definitely in it. We have, uh, I don't know, probably three or four people dedicated full-time to that specific issue of uh, ventilation and code and what the uh, what the market opportunities are supporting building scientists and supporting the architects and engineers. Um, but we're definitely not leading it. So we're not investing in research that says this level of CO2 uh, is detrimental or hurts, uh, you know, your learning capacity in a school setting. And uh, we're not saying this level of formaldehyde, right. Or this level of ozone is bad. We're definitely a follower or a listener in those. In those uh, How did, I, maybe you don't know, but it just I'm just kind of curious. It seems like you built that 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 um, unit that the, does both the dehumidification, the filtration, and ventilation. Maybe you were a little ahead of the, and still are a little ahead of the standards. How, how did that come up? Is that something that you guys you know saw because of uh, research that existed out there? Was it things you saw in the field? Um, and like like I say, maybe you don't know, but seemed like a, a really ahead of its time kind of idea. And I'm sure it's working well for you. At least I think it is. Maybe, maybe you can correct me on that. Well, um, we did pioneer the concept 
And Larry was around during that pioneering <laughs> yeah. of the concept in the uh, early 90s, right? So, Larry, if you want to, you can talk about how that concept was brought to market or I think what, what really started our interest in the residential dehumidification market was uh, our president at the time, Ken Gehring, was uh, really captured by uh, dust mites and dust mite allergens and the fact that dust mites were uh, sensitive to humidity and that if you had humidity control at home, you could prevent uh, dust mite allergies and so on. We actually sponsored some studies, I think, at Kent State uh, with a doctor that, uh, you know, uh, with the research determined, you know, that dust mites were an issue and that you know, they could be controlled with humidity. So we really started there, even before mold. Uh, the mold came on, we did more of the basement humidification. Basements ended up being uh, renovated or turned into living spaces, and uh, the cold surfaces in the basement were necessarily conducive to uh, a healthy environment. So we'd work with that. Uh, remember our earliest things, we'd talk about odor. You know, does your basement smell like a basement? And uh, through humid dehumidification, uh, we could make it smell like your living room. So that's where it all kind of started. And uh, as buildings got a lot tighter, uh, maybe we saw the consequences of having the tighter buildings. We saw a lot more moisture uh, being a year-round problem in a lot of places too. So you had to have the fresh air ventilation in our climate fresh air ventilation in the wintertime in order to keep things dried out. Uh, and then, uh, you know, dehumidification in the summer months to keep the, the mold issues down or the odor issues. And I think, so, you know, it was really what Melinda Ballard in Dripping Springs that really created mold as a super hot topic for restoration. Uh, before that, I remember in, in Wisconsin, we had tri-state homes where they ended up putting a vapor barrier on the wrong surface of uh, houses they were building, and the houses were essentially rotting away uh, due to the humidity. So it's been an evolution. It's always interesting to see where it's going. And, I uh, it, was, I, it helped me a lot understand where it came from. So it all came really more from dust mite. And then it just kind of grew into the fact that we're tightening up the homes and we need the ventilation. And then uh, was the filtration always, uh, I think it's what a MERV 13. Uh, was it always that high or have you just, have you kind of uh, made that better as time has gone on? You can go ahead and talk about that. Uh, so MERV 13 uh, is somewhat recent. Uh, California changed their building code for new uh, for new construction residential that uh, all outside air needs to be filtered by MERV 13. So when we saw that coming down the pipeline, we uh, swapped or we upgraded all of our residential dehumidifiers to MERV 13. Uh, historically, we've been either MERV 6 or MERV 8. Okay. Yeah, originally we did it to keep the equipment clean so it would continue operating. So uh, we had an engineer that was enamored with uh, making sure that things stayed clean inside so it was working. Interesting. Cliff, do you have a follow-up on that? Not on that one, Joe, no. All right, well, let's, let's go over. I, I see, um, you know, we talked about the in-place drying. I want to I go over to uh, smart homes a little bit. And, and 
it kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with um, your, your kind of monitoring system for, for drying projects. I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on, on smart homes and whether or not, um, say, you're, you're dehumidif- ventilating dehumidifier. Is that someday going to be able to tie into the smart home concept, or does it now? Uh, so we do have one dehumidifier that does tie in. Um, it's Wi-Fi enabled. We have an app for it. Um, I do find um, that the excitement level on IoT products, um, you know, it's very high on day one. It's a, not quite as high week one. And by, when month one is over, everyone's forgotten how to do it. Um, and we've got all types of IoT stuff in our house. Um, I, I'm a dehumidifier enthusiast. But really, honestly, how many times am I changing the set point of the dehumidifier, right? I want to know if the dehumidifier is not working and if my basement has a higher relative humidity than, say, 55%. And beyond that, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so I've got it on my phone. I could check it at any time. Uh, and really, like I said, the first day, I probably checked it three or four times. In the first week, it was down about once a week. And then uh, I really don't check it too much. So dehumidifiers, if it's doing its job, um, it's not too exciting. Um, I can see where, you know, ordering things off Amazon on IoT is a lot more exciting, right? Um, but we are connected, uh, and a lot of the smart uh, thermostats made by uh, other manufacturers can integrate with our product easily. And um, so we're, we're IoT uh, on our own f- platform, and then we're also through thermostats and humidistats from other vendors. You know, I saw an article, and I don't know if I included it in this week's uh, show announcement. We you know, I, I go through all the articles every week and I put them in the, in the show announcements, some new things. And one of the ones I saw, let me see if it's on there this week, was that, um, and if I get the number wrong, people can correct me, but it was either 30% or maybe 40% of uh, these home products that, that, you know, are IOT, uh, people have tried to hack into at some point. Um, and it seems to me like that would be a big issue for someone like yourselves that are, you know, involved in this whole network of uh, things. Uh, how much time and effort do you have to put into making sure that your, you know, your stuff can't be hacked into? Is that a huge issue for you? Uh, I mean, we have encryption and we do have some safeguards in place, but the fact that we're not really listening and we're not really taking video um, I'd say like on the, the, the list of priorities for the hackers in Eastern Europe, uh, setting the fire to uh, 60% as opposed to 50%, it's got to be pretty low on there, right? As opposed to checking out, uh, you know, alarm systems or video systems in the house. Uh, I did also want to say on Internet of Things, uh, there is a lot of uh, excitement around indoor air quality and Internet of Things and devices. Uh, but from our testing right now, the sensors, the VOC sensors, the CO2 sensors, the humidity sensors, it's still pretty much at the hobbyist level. If you want to do serious analysis or have serious results, um, the, the products don't exist yet, right? So there's a lot of hobbyist things that are fun, let's say like my dad, uh, but if you're gonna actually make assessments uh, that you can stand behind, there are no IoT, IAQ sensors that are worthwhile at this point, right? Uh, it's, it's a general feeling, right? So as, as one example, uh, we've tested uh, almost all of them. Uh, the one I want to test recently as the best and most accurate, we have four of them in someone's uh, office at Thermostore. And uh, as you walk by their office, you can see the color. And although all four are in the same room, it's like a rainbow because they're never agreeing on the same conditions in that room. So it's, you know, 
If you have one sensor, you can believe in it because you have nothing to compare it to. But when you're comparing against four and you see the variability between them, you realize you're still playing around with hobbyists, things for fun, and they're not, they're really not serious. Not there yet, huh? You know, I always laugh. I think about the restoration guys. I'll see a commercial where your phone can turn on your shower or turn on your sink. And I always think to myself, what could possibly go wrong there? I mean, (laughs) I just think it's like a a gravy train for the restoration guys. As time goes on, you know, people's faucets will be turning on all over the country at some point, but uh, let's, why don't we do this, John? Let's go to the Rondo. Let's go back around the around the, the horn here one more time. Cliff, do you have any final questions for our guests today? I have a word. Uh, you know, we had uh, interviewed Lloyd Weaver uh, on the program, and when we first talked to him, uh, you know, in the interview, at the end of it, uh, he talked about, I asked him, you know, if you looked in the crystal ball, you know, what was the next issue? that we were going to be dealing with. And he said, dust. And uh, I think dust in, in houses is, is important. And you know, if you're looking at innovation and uh, I, I think removal of particulate and dealing with fine particulate uh, is something that is important. And I'll tell you what I think the new word is. And the new word is hemp. Hmm. Just think about it. We're there. Okay, cool. You're in that market, right? Yeah, in fact, we're the number one brand. We're the number one uh, manufacturer for dehumidification in uh, indoor ag is the way we look at it. We hope that the market will grow and mature beyond just cannabis and hemp. Uh, into you know, There's definitely uh, indoor ag on uh, leafy greens, on tomatoes currently right now. Uh, I agree. It's a great market for us. And uh, for better, for worse, our, uh, our competition here in the U.S. has followed us into it, right? So we had it, uh, it was all open to us for a few years, but they've all followed us in. Well, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, is interesting is that it's not even all indoor ag. It's, it's they have to dry the outdoor product. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, some of the challenges and so on and so forth that it, you know, that are involved with it, but it's, it's good that you're there. Yeah. In fact, um, we got into it back in 2011 because I was talking to a uh, professor at UW who wanted me to create a drying machine for his, uh, for his hops. And I thought, well, that's a little niche market. I wonder if there's any bigger <laughs> markets. That there. <laughs> uh, guys, before we, before we sign off, I want to go to both of you and uh, just for a uh, a final thought, um, Larry. Let's start with you. Where, what's the future of the water damage restoration industry look like? Any innovations coming out? Just changes in the way uh, people are doing business? Is it going to become the next auto body kind of thing or medical insurance kind of thing? Uh, where, where do you see? Get out the crystal ball and tell listeners what's coming. Well, the way I see it is. Uh, There's going to be more innovation uh, in probably how you do it as opposed to necessarily the tools that you use when you're doing it. 
Uh, I don't believe, like I said earlier, uh, as far as the efficiency of the dehumidifiers go and so on, I don't think there's a whole lot of new space that's going to change things. Uh, but how you go about doing your job, recording your job, uh, cutting the cost of your job, and we talked about the, uh, the connectivity of the dehumidifiers and the technology coming that way. A lot of that is also uh, related to costs. I mean, if you have to send a guy out to monitor a job and he's got to take 15, 20 readings, it'll take a couple of hours, where with the uh, technology now, you can walk in and in 15 seconds, it's read all of the equipment. Um, how we do it, I think we're just going to keep getting better and better. I figure that uh, that's the way I always look at trying to improve. No matter where things are at one point, you can always make it a little bit better. TPAs, I guess they're here to stay. Uh, I think the industry created the need for TPAs. Uh, so I have trouble getting angry uh, at the TPA because it's filling a niche. If the trust broke down and they want TPAs to verify the readings and the information coming from the restorer, I think that's one of the restorer's problems, you know, uh, the changes that need to be made there, which is, again, why I think technology can help that along. So, uh, that's what I see. It's not going away. I'll tell you, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. I remember one year I sold like 750 dehumidifiers, and I thought, geez, that's all the dehumidifiers in the world. <laughs> I think, uh, now in a storm, we'll sell thousands upon thousands of dehumidifiers. Just for one storm, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be exciting. We had um, a gentleman on from Indiana that, that passed away, and I'm, I'm sorry I forgot his name. Cliff, do you remember what I'm talking about? Kurt Bolden. <laughs> Probably Kurt Bolden. Oh, yes, yes. And when he was on, Larry, he was talking about, you know, a lot of the topic at that time was heat, using heat to help dry. And I know that can be a touchy subject, so you may may not be able to touch it. Uh, but he was also talking about maybe microwaving buildings and finding a better way. Um, you see any, any potential there? Probably not. Uh, actually, I think uh, in Germany they worked on uh, trying to come up with a way of microwave uh, drying because, you know, they're drying through some uh, – Concrete and various other materials. Uh, I think it ended up cooking the pets in the adjacent units. So, uh, <laughs> that could be a problem. <laughs> needed to be done. And then, of course, you never know. You might have a guy walking down the street, and his pacemaker is going to go wild because you like her wave on his pacemaker. Interesting. Okay. Um, Todd, let's go over to your, I know you, you also do the restoration side, but in the uh, indoor air quality side, what do you see coming down the road as future innovations? So I definitely have to uh, tip my hat to Cliff there. Dust is definitely a huge issue. Uh, you know, we, we talk about it as PM 2.5. Um, and if you search just a little bit on Google on PM 2.5, it's, you know, it's considered one of the biggest health risks to the global population out there. And it comes down to small particulate uh, getting into your uh, bloodstream directly through your lungs. Um, so I, I agree. It's a huge issue. Um, where do I see things going? Um, you know, you know the, the big push is for more efficiency, right? So passive home for low energy homes, uh, more, you know, better insulation, tighter. Um, 
and really uh, conditioning the space uh, as effectively as possible. Um, we're definitely focused in that area. Um, where do I see other things? Uh, you know, there's going to be uh, a lot of solar uh, issues coming up, uh, solar uh, electricity generation. California's got a lot of uh, already in building code right now. Um, so I definitely see that's also going to be an impact. I don't know if it's ever going to get to restoration, right? Um, it definitely, uh, on peak loads on the house, solar definitely helps out, right? Because when it's hot, it's usually sunny, and that's where you're using the air conditioning, right? So there's a, a big benefit on the solar side. Uh, on indoor air quality, um, I don't know. There's, we're, we're definitely looking, right? So filtration is a big one. So I, I think I got to agree with Cliff. It's, uh, it's dust and PM 2.5. You know, with the, the electrify everything mantra that's been going through the building science community, they want to use it, you know, they want to electric, and uh, we've got the mini splits now that are hugely popular, um, solar, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, my, my thought is we, we need to watch uh, EMFs, uh, electromagnetic fields and frequencies, and, and and that could be a, an issue of the future for, for indoor air quality right now. I guess the science isn't there, but anecdotally, a lot of people have issues. I know even myself, uh, I got tinnitus, the, you know, the ringing in the ears. And if I don't shut that mini split off before I go to bed at night, uh, for whatever reason, it just seems to make it worse. And, um, you know, I think there are some other issues. So to me, that's just something we all ought to be watching out for. And uh, I'm not sure if you, are you guys looking at that at all? Has that been part of the, equation there uh only as far as meeting code on what type of um you know a radiation we can emit from our products in the first place right so um electromagnetic radiation out and i think uh meeting european standards is harder than meeting north american standards at this point. but we are you know we, we watch it i don't think we're looking to do anything to uh abate it in, uh, from other equipment or any products like that but I will take a note as soon as I can uh, grab my pen here. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks so much. Cliff, any final thoughts, questions? No, but I, I just enjoy the interview a lot. It's good. Uh, and then, gents, uh, before we go, we always like to give you the last word. Anything you'd like to add? Let's start with you, Larry. Uh, I don't know. Thank you for having me on. Uh, actually, some of your questions are a little thought-provoking for me. Uh, I have a tendency to get into a rut thinking about how things are. Uh, the PM 2.5, I think, is going to be something that's going to be re-emerging in restoration uh, as far as using scrubbers on jobs. Uh, yeah. Been conflicting studies done in the past uh, as far as capture zones and so on, and I'm hoping to get some interesting information from you, Joe, next week uh, on that subject. So, uh, Look at four. Do it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm uh, glad you're coming to the Healthy Building Summit. For those of you that haven't uh, signed up yet, next uh, Wednesday we have the pre-conference sessions. Thursday and Friday is the conference. So go to healthybuildingsummit.com and I uh, hope to see you there. Todd, final thoughts before we go. Uh, well, I'd just like to say thank you for giving us a platform uh, to have this discussion. Uh, definitely thank you to all the uh, Thermostore uh, customers, Phoenix, Santa Fe Ultra Air and Quest over the years. And really, it's the champions out there in the marketplace, too. So we're a small company. We don't have a huge sales force, but we have champions of our products out there that push it and you know, give their testimonials to create, you know, 
a rabid group of uh, enthusiasts for our products. So we definitely appreciate that. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Todd DeMont and Larry Carlson. Gentlemen, it was a great, great interview. Really enjoyed it. Uh, IAQ Radio is going to take a little break next week. We're going to be at the Healthy Building Summit 2019. When I come back the following week, I've got a, a really good interview. I think Cliff will be out of time, but I've got the, uh, the author, uh, Dr. Dunn of Never Home Alone. Uh, my wife and I found out that's very true last night when she caught a mouse here in the house. Uh, you're never home alone, folks. And uh, he wrote a fascinating book that we'll be interviewing him weeks from today on the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.